Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 82, the book of Matthew, chapter 24, the third continuation. Well, if the end times matters to you, if where we likely stand in the timeline of redemption history matters to you, then the study of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are crucial to your understanding. I don't want to leave any stone unturned in that understanding. Now, when we ended last week, it was at a point where we were discussing the biblical requirement of a third temple to be constructed in Jerusalem, an order for Daniel's end times prophetic forecast to occur, specifically that of the abomination of desolation to desecrate the temple sanctuary. Now, I'll start today's lesson by significantly expanding on that discussion since the temple is central to redemption history and it seems to be of such interest as it should be, to believers who wait expectantly for the triumphant return of our Savior, Yeshua, from His currently heavenly abode. Now I'm going to read the prophecy to you that Yeshua made to His disciples as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, no doubt listening spellbound, and perhaps a little frightened. In Matthew 24, 15 and 16. So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion, that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. Now, last time we read the whole of Daniel chapter 7, where we find the primary passage to which Yeshua is pointing. However, Daniel expanded upon that prophecy a little further in Daniel chapter 9. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I will quote for you enough of it to give you the proper context. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my own sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and pleading before Adonai my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gavriel, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, swooped down on me in full flight at about the time of the evening sacrifice, and he explained things to me. He said, I have come now, Daniel, to enable you to understand this vision clearly. At the beginning of your prayers, an answer was given, and I have come to say what it is, because you are greatly loved. Therefore, look into this answer and understand the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city for putting an end to the transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving inequity, for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal on vision and profit, and for anointing the especially holy place. Know therefore and discern that seven weeks will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until an anointed prince comes. It will remain built for 62 weeks with open spaces and moats, but these will be troubled times. Then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach, Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood and desolations are decreed until the war is over. He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week. For half of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. On the wing of detestable things, the desolator will come and continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. 
Now, I sort of chuckle at this extended passage because the angel Gabriel says, I have come now, Daniel, to help you understand this vision clearly. Well, it seems to me for Daniel and for us, Gabriel's explanation is about as clear as mud. It most certainly tantalizes our thoughts. It adds some pieces to the puzzle. So when taken alongside Daniel's recorded thoughts of his chapter 7, we can extract a bit more information that aids with the timing of this event that Gabriel's speaking about. But before we go there, I need to resurrect some things that I've spoken about from lessons in other Bible books that I've taught so that perhaps you can better understand what you may have already read in Bible study books or even heard from pulpits about the profound nature of the book of Daniel and why it matters so greatly to a proper faith in Christ and what our future looks like. Close to three decades ago, as I dove into more serious Bible studies, I began with studying the 19th century and earlier European Bible commentators because their works avoided the modern politics of the reborn nation of Israel, which, of course, didn't exist in their day, nor had World War I occurred, something that would reorder Europe politically and religiously. So these commentators seemed to be less agenda-driven. And as I worked my way up through them and then on into the mid-20th century commentaries, a noticeable change in tone started to appear in some of them. Their approach became less a discovery of what God said and how to understand it, and more a doubt about the veracity of the Bible. And as I progressed into commentaries and monologues written in the last third, I'll say, of the 20th century, a, a new breed of authors emerged who clearly were not believers, although most don't outright admit it. And these certain authors proved to be more skeptical about the authenticity of the Bible, or at least parts of it, and coincidental with the rebirth of Israel as a nation of Jews, they also began to weave into their commentaries a not-so-subtle bent against the idea of Israel, or at least they amplified the thought that God was done with Israel, and so the modern state of Israel and the Jews who populate it are a bother to Christian plans and details. I suppose then <laughs> that what I want you to take about what I'm about to say is that it's quite real. But also, I'd like it to be a caution because I will tell you it disturbs my peace to even have to make these comments. But serious Bible students that I'm looking out upon and God worshipers need to know these things. And I'm going to remind you that the prophet Daniel lived during the time of the Babylonian conquest of Judah. He was one of thousands of Jews carried off to Babylon early in the 6th century BC, and he, ser he even served Babylon's king up in Babylon due to his business acumen, his integrity, and his intelligence. Now, surprisingly, not all Bible scholars accept even this basic premise to be true. It is in vogue among modern and especially progressive Bible academics of the mid to late 20th and early 21st centuries to contend that the book of Daniel is essentially a work of fiction that was written about 160 BC or maybe a little bit later. Now, there's a few reasons they claim this. 
One <laughs> is that they do not accept the basic concept of prophecy. They see it as primitive mumbo-jumbo that was written after the fact, but made to appear as though it had been spoken before its fulfill, full, uh, fulfillment. What's their evidence for this? None. It's no more than a consensus of academic opinion. They don't agree that the works of the Bible are true as written or that they are God-inspired. Now, the Bible for many of them, and again, not all, is little more than a field of study, scientific language, historic, literary study, like anthropology, geology, Egyptology, a field that it interests them, and so it's become their career. Now, many of these same academics whose works often form the core of the materials used in some of our modern-day seminaries and theological schools also do not believe in the spirit world and therefore don't believe in God, or at least the God is presented in the Bible. Now, another reason that this particular segment of modern-day Bible scholars don't believe that Daniel is authentic is because the oldest extant copies of the Hebrew Bible that we have, the Old Testament, were written down about 100 B.C. And for the longest time, the oldest manuscripts we possessed were actually written in Greek. Now, this might seem odd, except that historical records state that the Hebrew Bible was first translated into the Greek language about 250 BC by some scholars in, that lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Therefore, since there were so many Greek speakers and readers in the world as compared to Hebrew speakers and readers, then far more copies of Greek manuscripts were made. So it makes sense that the odds of our discovering an ancient Bible written in Greek are greater than one finding one written in Hebrew. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, however, changed much of the understanding about the ancient Bible, its source and its origin. The dating of the biblical part of those Dead Sea documents traces to about 100 BC, about the same time as those Greek Bible documents. The Dead Sea Scrolls, however, were written in Hebrew. They were not written in Greek. The contention of these particular scholars is that because these Greek and Hebrew writings are the oldest biblical documents found to date, then it means that this could be the same time when the Bible or parts of it was first written. Thus, because the entire book of Daniel, as we have it today, is found in both the ancient Greek manuscripts, known in the academic world as the Septuagint, and in the Hebrew Dead Sea Scrolls, then this proves to their minds that Daniel had to have been written about that time as well. See, that's significant in their view, because it indicates to them that much of the Bible is a fraud or it's a Jewish myth, and Daniel cer certainly must be as well. Of course, the reality is that this is what they are predisposed to believe, and so they shun all evidence to the contrary. Yet this generally ignores the fact that there is no evidence or claim by the copiers of these ancient manuscripts that those thus far found are the original documents the first edition of the Bible, so to speak, written directly by the hand of the original authors. See, copies of the Bible in that era were all handwritten. They had been for centuries. They had no printing presses, let alone copy machines. Therefore, each complete copy was expensive. It took months, if not years, to make, and there were relatively few of them created. 
that somehow nature has preserved these ancient copied manuscripts written on animal skins and papyrus for over 2,000 years ago is astounding. That, Greek, that the Greek translation agrees so closely to the Hebrew as found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is equally astounding because it attests to the careful accuracy and consistency of transmission of the Bible's precious words over the ages. The Bibles we all study from today are, of course, copies of copies of copies of various translations. But just because your personal Bible wasn't dug up from the ground of the Middle East 2,500 years ago does not make it any less trustworthy or authentic. Bottom line, if some academics begin with the present, the premise rather, that there is no such thing as prophecy, then of course they look at the age of those Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and declare this is the originals, or very close to it when the Bible was first written. By believing in such a way, it allows them to say that the fulfillment events that these prophecies supposedly prophesied had already occurred well before the authors ever wrote down their so-called prophecies. Now, I take a view more similar to the mainstream Bible academics of the mid to early 20th century and before. I support the written historical evidence that the authors who claim to be the writers of the various books of the Bibles are who they claim to be and wrote when they claim they did. There is no doubt that the ancient people who over the centuries hand copied these documents as voluminous as the Hebrew Bible, even if only one book of it, made the occasional spelling error accidentally left out, transposed a word, or some such thing. I mean, it's impossible to imagine it otherwise. And as an illustration of my point, if someone were to make a handmade copy of the original Constitution of the United States of America as written in 1787 and accidentally made an error, They misspelled something. They left out or transposed a word or some such thing. That does not invalidate the rest of it or the Constitution's original authenticity or its purpose and meaning, and it will not confuse us, the readers, provided we read the document in its entirety with knowledge in the, of its context and its intent. This is why we must do the same when studying the Bible, Old and New Testaments, not cherry pick in order to reach some predetermined conclusion. Now, all that said, we also find that Christ clearly professed his personal trust in the book of Daniel. He embraces to himself Daniel's son of man concept throughout his ministry. However, some Bible academics dismiss Jesus' words about the book of Daniel as his source of the prophecy concerning the abomination of desolation as but the gospel writer Matthew's overzealous attempt to put words into Yeshua's mouth that he never uttered. That is, just as they do not believe in the authenticity of the Old Testament in general, neither do they believe in the authenticity of the Gospel of Matthew. Why? Because as a baseline, they don't believe in prophecy. And therefore, essentially, do not believe any book of the Bible can be fully authentic. So, after the unveiling of an uncomfortable reality about modern Bible scholars 
some of them. Let's circle back now, and we're going to understand that what Christ prophesied regarding the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, that's the temple sanctuary, had indeed already happened once in the past, and every Jewish child was aware of it as they were as aware of the far more ancient exodus from Egypt. See, this particular desecration happened nearly two centuries before Yeshua's time. So since prophetic fulfillment had already happened, then what was it that Christ was alluding to? I mean, I find that the words that he finishes his thought with are the key. Because he says in Matthew 24, 15, so when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion. Let the reader understand the illusion. What does he mean by that? What illusion? Every version of Matthew that I could find has these same words. So they must be original and authentic. Now, since the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes was so well known, documented, remembered, by the Jewish people, then the purpose for Christ saying this was for them to form a mental picture of this past event that's going to apply to a similar but a later event. The Daniel chapter 9 passage we looked at confirms the far future nature of the prophecy because Gabriel speaks about the Messiah being involved in it in some way. See, it's common among Bible academics to say that by invoking Daniel, this is Yeshua's way of warning about the coming destruction of the temple by the Romans, which would happen around 35 years after his death. Yet Daniel's prophecy also predicts that this wicked prince who destroys Jerusalem and the temple will first place an image of himself in the temple sanctuary, the abomination of desolation. And then afterwards, this same prince will himself be destroyed. So some important pieces of this prophecy did not happen with Rome's destruction of the temple. The Romans certainly burned it down, dismantled its stones, but there is no reco recorded ritual desecration akin to what Antiochus Epiphanes had so purposely done. The Romans did not set a pagan image, an abomination of desolation, in the temple sanctuary. Therefore, while certain elements of Daniel's and Christ's prophecies happened in 70 AD, not all of it did. So we must see this either as a failed prophecy or something that's still ahead of us. And to the point of this lesson, this future temple desecration necessarily involves the existence of a third temple, because temples one and two were destroyed for centuries. The assumption within the church has been that this evil prince that places an abomination of desolation in the temple is the Antichrist of the end times, and I thoroughly agree. But three things must happen for this to become a reality. First, Israel must be reborn and exist as a nation. That became a reality in 1948. Second, Jerusalem must return as a Jewish-held city, as the capital of Israel, but also the Jews must be in control of the Temple Mount. The first necessary first part 
happened in 1967. But the second part has not come about. The Temple Mount is today, by international agreement, including Israel's concession to it, under the control of the Jordanian Islamic Waqf. Third, the temple must be given the international go-ahead to be reconstructed. And it seems by most accounts <laughs> that the location of the temple must be where that current Islamic holy site, the Dome of the Rock, that golden dome that everybody sees, that's where it currently stands. That's a problem. There is no situation on the horizon that would seem to allow for the removal of that Islamic shrine, although many modern-day Christian prophets predict an earthquake will destroy it, making way for a new temple. Now, since we know from the Bible that before Messiah returns, that temple must exist and be in operation, including Levite priests doing altar sacrifices. The Antichrist must also be in power, and he must declare himself to be God, and to go so far as to desecrate that new Jewish temple. In a repeat of Antiochus's Epiphanes, terrible act. Then it seems to me that currently it would be a little premature to claim that we are living in the end times since none of this has happened yet. Well, I want to read verses 15 through 22 to uncover some more information. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 15 through 22. 15 through 22. <coughs> So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion, then that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. If someone is on the roof, he must not go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone is in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not have to escape in winter or on Shabbat, for there will be trouble then, worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now, and there will be nothing like it again. Indeed, if the length of this time had not been limited, no one would survive. But for the sake of those who have been chosen, its length will be limited. The pace of what will happen in the end times, apparently is going to quicken once the Antichrist is revealed for who he is. Thus, those who are eyewitness to the Antichrist placing an image in the temple, those Jews living in Judah, are to flee to the hills. And verses 17 through 20 heighten the urgency of a race for safety using mostly terms that are appropriate for first century times. That is, if a person is on the roof of their home, they are not to take even a moment to grab some clothes or provisions. People of modern times in Judah and Israel won't be on their roofs. Roofs in ancient times were but another room of the house. The roofs were flat, they were sturdy, and in hot weather, people would sleep on them. Sometimes they were used as the family dining room or a space to gather for conversation or sometimes as a place to host guests. Next, this passage speaks of someone working in the field. They must not even take the time to rush home to get a coat. So whether one is at home or at work, minutes are going to matter if one is going to save his or her own life. See, this smacks of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt when it was so hurriedly done, but even more so, I think, of Lot fleeing from Sodom. Later, many Jewish believers fled to Pella. When the Romans began their sacking of Jerusalem, because they
they took Yeshua's warning in this passage to mean that event. Now, running away means that some kind of travel is involved. If a person is all by him or herself, it's going to be a lot easier for them than it will be for a pregnant woman who probably also has other children that need her. Or for a woman still nursing her infant because of the complexities that children necessarily add to a journey. Thus are added the words in verse 20, that one must hope this does not happen in winter. Again, winter time brings more complexities and the need to gather extra clothing. Further, in Judea, rain is a winter event, and at altitude, snow's common. One is also to hope that the Antichrist doesn't double down on his desecration of the temple by choosing a Sabbath on which to do it. But I imagine he could well choose to do it on a Sabbath to further mock God and inflict surprise on the Jewish people. Sabbath, being a holy day of ceasing, will in some ways leave the Jews even less prepared, probably more hesitant to travel than the other six days of the week. I mean, after all, it is a Jewish tradition that one is to travel no further than a Sabbath day's walk on the Sabbath, which generally speaking is within the boundaries of the whatever town one resides. Thus, to flee to the hills will be felt as violating God's Sabbath laws, especially for the more observant Jews. Now, of course, to Yeshua's listeners, and Matthew's readers, these words from Jesus eliminate any possibility that he could be talking about something from the past. There is also the strong hint of something else that needs to be said out, that will be said rather outright later. Yeshua doesn't know when this is going to happen. Verse 21 sums up things up in a rather general way. In the complete Jewish Bible, the verse begins, For there will be trouble. Nearly all other English versions say something more familiar to your ears. In verse 21, For then there shall be, such, be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall now, the Greek word that the complete Jewish Bible translates as trouble in all of their versions, virtually all of their versions, translate as tribulation is philipsis. Philipsis. The Greek lexicons explain that this word literally means a pressure from pressing something together. But when it's used as a metaphor, it refers to oppression or affliction. Here in verse 21, the modifier great precedes the word tribulation. That is, it says great tribulation. Okay, let's examine for a moment what amounts to a Christian myth. Most any standard study of the end times at some point speaks of the tribulation and the great tribulation. Those two terms are usually capitalized and presented as referring to two different named events in redemption history. The tribulation represents a specific event where things get really bad. The great tribulation represents a specific and separate event when things get even worse than the human mind can imagine. The reality is that the article, the, isn't present before either term, and the better translations don't even include it. So there is no such thing as the tribulation and the great tribulation. They are not names, they're not titles of events. Rather, it is like you saying 
you will experience pain and then later some more pain. That's what it's like. So here Yeshua was saying that around the time of the abomination of desolation occurs, the world is going to see great affliction and oppression in general. In fact, this period of affliction will be worse for Earth's inhabitants than has ever been known since the Earth was formed at its beginning. And, thank the Lord, it will never be repeated. This is yet another prophecy taken from Daniel. Daniel 12.1, when that time comes, Michael, Michael, the great prince who champions your people will stand up and there will be a time of distress unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time, your people will be delivered and everyone whose name is found written in the book. Now, Daniel, he speaks of it a little more hopefully than Yeshua does. Daniel says that as bad as it's going to be, deliverance will be born out of it. Although he also says that not everyone will be delivered. Only those whose names are found written in the book, presumably meaning God's book of life. Yeshua, on the other hand, merely says that when the peak of those troubles arrive, and when it seems that not a human being on earth can possibly survive it, the time will be cut short. For the sake of those who have been chosen. Now first, what is it that limits the time of such great affliction? It's not stated. It is concluded by most scholars, and I concur, that this must be speaking of some kind of divine intervention. It is, seems to me that the most logical conclusion, due to the stated concern that for the sake of the chosen, the period of those these great troubles is shortened, has to be God. Many English versions use the term the elect instead of the chosen. Mark's gospel puts it this way in Mark 13, 20. Indeed, if God had not limited the duration of the trouble, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those whom he has chosen, he has limited it. So Mark uses both the elect and the chosen. Now, a good question might be, how are the days shortened and who are the elect? Obviously, God is in control over this time of trouble on earth. It defies any ability to properly describe it. So does that mean that in some way he cut short the number of days or weeks that he foreknows this trouble will go on if he doesn't intervene? Or... Does he accomplish this by literally shortening the length of a day? Does, does a day become less than 24 hours? Might the spin of the earth be caused to speed up? Could it be that the intangible sense that we humans have of time speeds up? You know, I've heard young and old speak about how fast time seems to be flying in the 21st century, and in a very real sense. A long or a short amount of time is often not perceived by humans by using the objectivity of a clock or a calendar, but rather by how it feels to us. I really don't have a strong sense of which of these Christ may be alluding to. Now, as for the issue of identifying the chosen, the chosen, the elect, seems to be referring to a group as opposed to individuals. Those that form a group called the elect have been hand-selected. They've been chosen by God. He decides. Jesus doesn't at this time address the criteria you use on how to be one of the chosen in order to join the elect. In fact, biblically speaking, the terms, the elect and the chosen, are rather hazy. 
When we look at the Old Testament for guidance, probably the best place is Psalm 105. Verses 6 and 43 use the Hebrew word bachir, which in English is probably best translated into chosen. It seems to always refer to the Hebrew people in some way. Now, I suspect that as with so much else Yeshua speaks, he says it in a meaning that is applicable in both the Peshat and the Remez senses, with the first referring to something immediate or that is surrounding him, and in the second sense, as something that manifests itself in a deeper way at a later time. If this is the case, I believe it to be, then in the Peshat sense, the simple sense, the tribulation that is spoken of is meant as something that happens locally in Israel, in the Holy Land. And the chosen are meant as the Jewish believers that live there. However, in the Remez sense, the hint, the longer duration sense, the tribulation is meant as something that manifests itself in a larger, all-encompassing way globally. And so the chosen refers to all believers in Yeshua, Gentile and Jew, that together form the elect. Now, Gentiles, we must always remember that the language and the setting for the Bible in general and for the end times in particular is primarily Israel-centric. What happens in Israel may spread beyond its borders, but the main action begins there. The people God deals with may involve Gentiles, but it always begins with and is focused mostly at Hebrews, members of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's odd how the Christian church has turned this biblical reality on its head. The problem with this kind of a doctrine is that it teaches Christians the wrong things to look for, as well as the wrong places to look. Let's read a few more verses in Matthew 24. <clears throat> Open your Bibles back up. We're going to start at verse 23. Read verse 23 to just 28. And at that time, someone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah. There he is. Don't believe him. For there will be, rather, there will appear false messiahs and false prophets performing great miracles, amazing things, so as to fool even the chosen if possible. There, I've told you in advance. So if people say to you, Listen, he's out in the desert, don't go. Or look, he's hidden away in a secret room. Don't believe it. For when the Son of Man does come, it'll be like lightning that flashes out of the east and fills the sky to the western horizon. Wherever there's a dead body, that's where you'll find the vultures. <clears throat> All right, verse 23 begins with, at that time. At what time? See, this must be connected with the times of the greatest afflictions and oppressions on earth that happen in conjunction with the Antichrist desecrating the temple. See, I think we need to be cautious here. Not try to add too much Western-style precision to the meaning of, of it. We should not think in terms of, okay, on Sunday... The Antichrist announces he's God. On Monday, he desecrates the temple. So before Tuesday, the Jews of Judah must flee for the hill country or something like that. Some of this is going to happen in a serial order. That is, one thing causes the next thing to happen. Other things will probably happen in parallel. And one of the things that's going to happen in parallel with these other bad things is that false messiahs will appear claiming to be the true messiah and false prophets will arise that actually can do amazing miracles but they won't be doing them 
by the power of God, but rather by the power of the adversary. Now, I must speak of something that I've encountered for a number of years because I see it as having a direct bearing on this warning from Yeshua about false messiahs. We cannot, we must not think that we can believe in any old Christ, any old Jesus, any old Savior of our pleasurable imaginings. The biblical Jesus is the only Jesus who saves. And he is the sum of all of his attributes, not just the ones we like. One way of expressing this is to speak of a search for the authentic or the historical Jesus, which common sense says begins with the fact that he was a Jew. See, I've shared in past lessons about a time many years ago that I was teaching a multi-week seminar in which my opening words the first evening were, Christ was a Jew. And I just left those words hanging in the air for a few seconds because I knew the impact it would have on at least a few in my evangelical audience. And I noticed some people kind of shifting in their seats. But an older man in the back of the room leaned over to his wife and mouthed the words to her, that's not true. <laughs> and he and his wife stayed until the first break, but they didn't return to the classroom for the next section session. The next week, class resumed. The wife showed up. The husband didn't. The following week, he was back. Uh-oh. And as the seminar resumed and I was about to speak, he raised his hand and asked if he could say something. And with much trepidation, I called on him. And he proceeded to confess that he'd been a Christian all of his life, had gone to church many, many years, but in all that time, it had never occurred to him that Jesus was a Jewish man. He went home from that first evening. He searched his Bible, and after a couple of, I have no doubt, very difficult weeks, proved that simple statement to himself. But at first, it had unnerved him. Turns out Christ was someone quite different than he had thought he was, and now he was ready to learn about him. Now, I suppose I'm sensitive to this because when a teacher long ago had unexpectedly opened my eyes to this indisputable fact, it unnerved me. But once I got over it, suddenly the door was opening to thinking about Christ in a different way. Naturally, who Yeshua is goes far beyond the simple ethnic reality that he was a Jew, born to a Jewish mother, and his non-biological, but nonetheless earthly, Jewish father Joseph. Probably because of the recent rise and impact of the Hebrew or Jewish roots of Christianity movement, there's this kind of growing pushback in some sectors of the traditional church because the idea of a thoroughly Jewish, Torah-observant, Hebrew-speaking Jesus that loved his people has implications that threaten centuries of traditions and doctrines that aren't only woven into the fabric of the church, they're the cement of the foundation of it. Thus, terms like the historical Christ or the Jewish Jesus can be fighting words to some. I'm here to tell you, and we'd better all be searching for the authentic historical Christ. Or we're going to discover a false Messiah instead and be none the wiser for it. It may even lead to our eternal doom. In fact, 
In fact, Yeshua promises this. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, I have news for you. These false messiahs Yeshua's warning us about, they're going to be very convincing to Christians. Very convincing. They'll probably know Scripture like few people do. They'll likely have an aura of goodness surrounding them, speak in a warm and gentle way that's utterly disarming. What I can easily predict is that each one of them will not be seen as going against the mainstream of Christian beliefs about the Messiah, but rather they will seem to be the embodiment of it. If those false messiahs did otherwise, they'd be quickly rejected. So by what standard will belief or disbelief of these false messiahs be judged? No doubt, for most, it will be according to what they think they know about Christ, and much of that will be according to the traditions and doctrines they've been taught about Him. Comforting and familiar images that these false messiahs, clever wolves in nearly undetectable sheep's clothing are well aware of, and they will attempt to fulfill them. See, these false messiahs, along with false prophets that in some cases will likely join together to achieve their, inner, their intentional deceptions or carry out their I think in some cases will be just self-delusions, are going to be so good at what they do that Yeshua says in verse 24, they'd fool the chosen. Those are part of the, uh, that are part of the elect group. If it were possible, next time, we're going to speak about the inoculation of believers against the deadly virus of the deception of false messiahs that are guaranteed to be part and parcel of the end times.